Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's Word, fellowship, and prayer. All right, so we begin with a salutation as they arrive in Jerusalem. It says in verse 15, and after those days we took up our carriages, and, and that's not like, like an old west carriage, right? Uh, that just means luggage. They had their luggage. They took up their luggage and went unto Jerusalem. There went with us also certain of the disciples of Caesarea and brought with them one, of, uh, one Nason of Cyprus, an old disciple, with whom we should lodge. It's always good to bring around an old disciple, right? You know, you always want someone who's wise that's been around the block in your camp, right? So for a lot of you guys, I know the guys at UMKC especially, that's been Eric, maybe Brian Bustos, right? The guys are a little bit older, Brent, Brent Fitzpatrick, the guys in our ministry that have been around for a while, Andrew, it's good to have people like that in our camp. And that's why in, in Kaya, as much as we want this ministry to be as young as possible, we always want to be ministering to 18, 19, 20-year-olds, college-age people, that there are people in our ministry that won't age out. And we need them to stay, right? We need them to be a part because they're going to they're function as monumental in our ministry. They're going to be a compass. They're going to be people that can say, oh, you're dating now. Let me, let me talk to you about dating. I've been through that. Or, or oh, oh, you're going to get married now. Or, oh, you're going to buy a house. Or, and they're going to be able to help us in our decision making. It's always good to have old disciples around. Yeah? And so here they come into Jerusalem. And when, and when we were come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And so the whole team, the whole Jerusalem team, the leaders and the elders there, would have welcomed them with open arms. And they would, have, they would have brought them in. They would have fed them. And they would have lodged them. And so think about it for a second. Like, think about this encounter. You've got the missionaries and, 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 and teachers that have been following along with Paul, ministering to the Gentiles, discipled with Paul, these, these fairly new, excited, thriving uh, uh, young men and women who were part of Paul's ministry, and they show up and they encounter most of them for the very first time, men like James, Peter. Men that, men that were there and present on the day of Pentecost in the upper room when the Holy Spirit came down. Men that had experienced tribulation and trial and things that these, these younger believers hadn't. And they're encountering, encountering each other. They'd heard the stories of one another. And now they get to meet for the very first time. And you could just sense... Like Paul's heart is just probably so full. It's like an electrifying moment. Like these believers that have been following Jesus Christ separate from one another are coming together for the first time in this meeting. And you can just sense it's like a magical moment. And they're enjoying each other's company and they greet each other. And Paul's there and, and, and they rest and they spend time with one another. And then after a season, they come together and they meet. They have a formal meeting. In verse 18 it says, And the day following... Paul went uh, in with us unto James, and all the elders were present. And when he had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. So the leaders here are now gathered, and they're catching up on what's been going on, and Paul begins to rehearse to, him, to them all the things that God has done in Salamis, and Paphos, and Perga, in Antioch, and Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, Ephesus, and Illyricum. And all of these places that Paul's been, and all the stories, and it says there, the word particularly, it says he de declared particularly, that means in specificity. One thing after another, he made sure he was telling them all the things that God had done over the last few years in ministry. Pretty amazing. The thousands that had been saved, the thousands that had been discipled, the way that God had turned the world upside down, and he told them the story. And not only that, he would have delivered to them in this moment that financial gift. Look, 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 these are the people that, that, that have come to know Christ. And they've come to be discipled. 
And they've never met you before, but they love you so much that they gathered together this money because they know the church in Jerusalem has been in a season of hardship and famine. And so they gathered this money together in sacrifice. And here you go. Here's that money. I mean, what a precious, precious thing. What a cool place to be. All this, all this done and all this said and all this rejoicing, and yet the leaders in Jerusalem found a way to throw a wet blanket on all that God had done. And they turned the the attention quickly away from what God has done in those Gentile nations, and they turn it quickly to their own praises and to their own problems. You ever met people like that? Where you're like rejoicing, and you got all these things that you're saying, like, man, God's been doing all this awesome stuff, and the only thing they know how to do is like, oh yeah, well, God's done this in my life. Right? Well, God's doing this thing in my life. You know? And it's this kind of immature response. And then, and then, then, then they're usually really quick to also talk about all their problems. Right? So then rather than rejoicing and focusing on glorifying, the, on glorifying God, they find a way to make it about their problem. Yeah? And, and so that's what we're going to see right here. From this passage, we're going to uncover three ways in which the character and misguidedness of well-intentioned believers can result in serious consequence and failure for the church. Verse 20, when they heard it, that is the, the Jerusalem elders, when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, said unto Paul, thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe. And so they're, 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 they're basically saying, we've, got, we've seen many people saved too. Thousands upon thousands of Jewish background believers have come to know Christ. But see, here's the kicker. Here's the kicker. And they are all zealous of the law. They're all zealous of the law. They are very much still focused on the law, particularly the significance of circumcision. That's, that's the response. Now, for those of you who don't know and you haven't been with us long enough, you, may don't, you maybe don't remember how big of a deal this has been among the early believers. And so we even talked about this when we were studying Romans, that there was kind of these factions of believers. The Jewish believers, the ones that have a Jewish background in the Old Testament, were inclined to focus heavily on Old Testament law and traditions. It was their inclination to do that. But for the Gentile believers, the ones that had never known that belief system, who were just coming to know Jesus Christ out of of paganism and false teaching, for them it was just exciting. It was just grace upon grace. And and then when they'd come together, there was this weird pressure from, from the Jewish believers against the Gentiles that they needed to practice all the things that the old Jewish believers used to practice. All those things of the Mosaic law, particularly the circumcision, which was this practice. You guys know what circumcision is, right? We don't have to do that, do we? You guys know what that is, right? Okay. Um, and there was this, this practice that the, that the Jewish believers used to follow of being circumcised. They were, they were hoping and wishing that upon the, the new Gentile converts. Now this became such a problem that in Acts chapter 15, Paul goes to Jerusalem And they kind of debate the issue. You remember this? And James himself is present there. And the conclusion of the matter is that grace covers every culture, every ethnicity, every background, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is sufficient. And that we don't need anything else, any tradition or law, to validate the righteousness of a believer. That the gospel is sufficient to set men free. And that they don't need to practice some sort of tradition or feast or holiday or do any sort of thing in order to garner or earn favor from Jesus Christ. That he's already bestowed it on every believer that repents of their sin and believes upon Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And there was a conclusion to the matter. Do you remember that in Acts 15? And they're like, okay, we are in agreement. And James even wrote a letter to the Gentile churches, he, he wrote this, took the time to write this letter, and he's like, look, we recognize what God's doing among the Gentiles, and, and we recognize that you don't need to be circumcised, and we recognize that God's grace is enough. Now, there's some things that we'd like for you to do. 
you know, like refrain from eating meat offered to idols and things like that just in order to be blameless. But outside of that, they acknowledge this, this, this whole thing was settled in Acts chapter 15. And yet here we are once again finding it to be a problem. Very much unresolved in the hearts and the minds of all of the new Jewish converts. All of those people in Jerusalem that over the last few years had come to know Jesus Christ. They weren't really necessarily down with the resolution from Acts chapter 15. So this is the cultural climate that Paul is coming into. Verse 21. Continuing on in James' description of these new Jewish believers in Jerusalem. And they are informed of thee, that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. What is it therefore? The multitude must needs come together, for they will hear, uh, they will hear that thou art come. So in their immaturity... They've even made false accusations against Paul. This is what they're saying. We've heard that Paul is telling people to not follow after what Moses taught. That he's actively telling people that they shouldn't be circumcised. That he's actively telling people that the laws and the traditions of the Old Testament are a waste, that they're unnecessary. And Paul never did that. He left circumcision and issues like that to the convictions of the believers who came to know Christ. He let the Holy Spirit work that out. Now, he wasn't actively promoting it, saying that you needed to do these things, but he wasn't speaking against it. But that's the accusations that these new Jewish believers are making against Paul and his converts. Does it make sense? Are you guys with me so far? And so Paul's coming into a climate where people are hostile against him. I mean, here he is talking about all the things that God has done, and he's bringing an offering to these believers and saying, look, we've gathered this for you. We love you so much. And they're like, well, we've heard about you, and you're suspect. And so there's suspicion that surrounds Paul, and they're doubting the work of God in his life, and it's absolute immaturity. And so here's the deal. We're going to look at three things about the church in Jerusalem. And the very first thing that we're going to look at is the fact that the church in Jerusalem was focused on the wrong things because they were a lifeless church. They were a lifeless church. And so I want to point out the very first thing that I want to look at here is the fact that they had grown, hadn't they? I mean, the, the thing that James said is, well, we've seen thousands saved too. But before he can even talk about what God's done in the regard of salvation, he's busy talking about things that aren't important. And that's a snapshot of the real issue that we find here. And I want to point something out before we get too far here, and that is that numerical growth doesn't mean healthy church. A growing church is always in danger of having the illusion of fruitfulness and victory. So, oh, oh sure, the church in Jerusalem was growing. People were coming to know Christ. But that doesn't mean that they were thriving. And that doesn't mean that they're mature. It's like a, a plant that starts strong is never guaranteed to remain strong. I mean, I, 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 I know that there's a few of you that are living the dad life now. I think about Jorge's lawn. He's very focused on getting his lawn in order. I really like that. I like that I'm, I don't, other people are acting like old men, and I don't feel alone. So Jorge's out there, you know, inspecting his grass, and, you know. But some of you know if you've ever, I mean, I know that some of you um, keep cacti and succulents in your, in your apartments and things like that, and and you liked your plants. And, and it, here's the thing that we know about plants. Is that a plant that starts strong doesn't necessarily remain strong. It doesn't necessarily become fruitful. This year, I did a lot of planting, transplanting, as I always do in my yard, you know. And I'm moving plants around. And the beginning of this season, the spring season, there was tons of water. But then before these recent rains, did you notice that there was just like a week and a half of just beating sun? 
And a bunch of the plants that I had planted that were doing really well have since withered up, and I don't know, I don't know how they're going to make it. They might not blossom this year. Like my flowers might not actually come in to blossom. We'll see. We'll find out. But they really got hurt by the drought. And so here's my point. Don't make fun of me, Eva. She's like, you're so lame. Here's my point. Is that just because, just because a ministry appears to be growing doesn't mean that it'll be fruitful. And man, for me, that makes me think about this ministry a lot. This ministry right here. How, how we've grown. We've, God has done so much. People are coming to know Jesus Christ all the time. People are getting baptized, and it's exciting. It's exciting. But I was, I was even telling Cameron just this morning, I can't, I, I, told her, I can't tell you how many people I've baptized, that after I baptized them, I never saw them again. They just disappeared. And they're somewhere living in drought and famine and their lives are proving to be fruitless. And so the point is, is that this church in Jerusalem may have appeared to be fruitful because of the numbers, but there was a a failure in one particular area that's very important and that is spiritual growth. They had failed to focus on spiritual growth. And that leads us to this next aspect of a lifeless church and that's this. In the absence of discipleship, People always lean on what makes them the most comfortable. In the absence of discipleship, people will always lean to the thing that makes them the most comfortable. In this case, the failure to be invested in, in Jerusalem, resulted in an adherence to the law. The thing that was the most comfortable for them was conforming their lives to what they already knew from their past. Their virtue and their morality was based on what they already knew because no one was challenging them to move forward in faith and grow into the new things that Jesus Christ had for them. Does that make sense? And this is why discipleship is so important. There's so many people in this room right now who are debating whether or not you ought to be discipled. And that debate only suspends your ability to truly grow. That debate in your mind of whether or not you're available or whether or not it's a priority or whether or not it's important or whether or not the timing is right and all of that does, all of that does is keep you from getting challenged the way that you need to be challenged in order to move forward in faith and ultimately be fruitful. And so for our church, we talk about biblical discipleship and what we mean by that is mentorship from one thriving life, someone who's already proven to be fruitful, pouring their life into the life of another believer who wants to grow too, who wants to be fruitful, who wants to be useful for the kingdom. Because the the, the Christians in Jerusalem were not being challenged in their faith, all of these new converts, all of these people that had been evangelized and came to know Jesus Christ, were given space in their lives to emphasize the wrong things. Because their faith wasn't alive, dead traditions took root, and the weeds of dead tradition is what thrived. That became their faith. So even though Jesus Christ had set them free... Their faith in Jesus Christ was put on the back burner. It was de-emphasized. And as they lived out what they thought was a Christian life, they began to emphasize the things of the law again. You know why? Because their life was given space to do that. So back to the, the plant analogy. Sorry, I don't know what... It's the only analogies I got. That's how boring my life has become. The only thing I can talk about is my garden. But you know what? The, the thing about my garden is that if I leave space between plant life the in-between will always produce weeds. It always will. And your life is no different. The space you leave open for, for, for everything else, whether it's sin, temptation, whether it be good things like college, career, whatever it might be, whatever you leave space for, it will be filled. And for these guys, it was the covenants and the laws and the traditions and the things that only sought to weigh people down and keep them from emphasizing the most important things, discipleship, growth, equipping, sending, church planting, missions, 
They weren't thinking about any of that. None of that was important. They're just pissed off because Paul was ministering to Gentiles and they just sat around grumpy all the time, thinking about things that they shouldn't have been thinking about. This can happen in our lives too. And that leads us to the third thing. A lifeless church is a church that hasn't mobilized people for the mission. These believers had not been provoked by the church leaders to look beyond themselves. For them, the church began and ended in Jerusalem, which prophetically is true. But circumstantially here, it is not. These believers couldn't look beyond themselves in order to see that the church wasn't about them. It was about knowing Christ and mobilizing ministers to reach the world for God's glory. Remember at the beginning of Acts, when Christ addressed the apostles, right? This, Acts chapter 1 is the only place in Acts we see Jesus, right? And Jesus is hanging out with his disciples, and he's getting ready to go. Do you remember what he says to them in verse 8? But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, okay, where you're at currently, but also, listen, in all Judea and Samaria even, crazy thought, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And since that time, since Acts chapter 1, the believers had a really hard time, the believers in Jerusalem had a really difficult time getting out and going to the uttermost to to preach the gospel. Do you remember that? And how persecution was the only way for God to get those, those believers in Jerusalem to scatter to the other places. And in fact, that's how the church in Antioch ultimately was planted. Because, because God had to, to let persecution thrive in order to scatter the believers out and to bolster their faith. But there were a lot of holdouts in Jerusalem. And since that time, the church in Jerusalem had struggled over and over again to take this command seriously. And it led to them becoming stagnant and self-focused. Because in their minds, it wasn't about the uttermost. And I want to point something out to you, that there's there's a huge conceptual jump for believers. From thinking about how Jesus died for your sins, and and he worked in your life that you might be set free, and how Jesus is going to help me emotionally and work through my, my psychological issues and the things that I struggle with. And, and, and Jesus is going to, he's going to teach me and help me. And he's going to, there's a jump from that place, which is awesome and amazing and perfect. There's a jump from that space to thinking about others. And thinking about others that need the thing that you've been given. And going and seeking this and saving the lost that are all around us everywhere. And the mark of true maturity is choosing not to think about yourself and all the wonderful things that God has done for you and choosing to focus on those that you need to reach. And as much as I've always loved the time that I spent in the early years when I was coming to know Christ and a lot of my faith felt about me and growing and my knowledge and all these things, I would never go back to that place because I'm I'm so much more satisfied in my relationship with Christ when my eyes are on his mission. I've never felt more close to God. I've never felt more changed and transformed than I feel when I'm focusing on reaching the people that he wants to reach and prioritizing the things that he wants me to prioritize. I've never felt more close to his character. And that's the problem that we find here. The problem in Jerusalem is that that ultimately they were afraid of change. They were afraid of change. They were afraid of growth. They were afraid of being challenged. They were afraid of being pushed to do things that they had a hard time imagining themselves do. But here's the deal. When you stop growing, you start dying. It's it's true. Physiologically, it's true. Right? I mean... I think you stop growing, like most people stop growing around 24, 25 years old, right? That caps out around that time. From that moment on, your body is working towards decay. This is the wrong wrong group of people to tell that to, right? But I'm like, I'm well on my way. Everything is harder. 
I played basketball last night with Dylan and Shepard, and I literally hit the couch and could not move afterwards. <laughs> I was so sore. I'm still sore, obviously. You know, like, I don't know if you can tell him, like, trying to play off being a little bit stiff. But, but the point is, is that the, the, when you stop growing spiritually, and you stop letting the Lord challenge you, and you stop, you stop letting the ministry and, and, and the word of God move you forward. You know that you, you've never come, I don't care how many classes you've taken, you never come to a place where you know this book perfectly. You never come to a place where you live God's word perfectly. There's always room for growth. And the moment that you stop growing in God's word is the moment that you start dying and you start emphasizing things that ought not be emphasized. This is why old people are so freaking legalistic. Right? They get so stuck in their ways because at some point along the way, they had a family, they had a house, they had a 401k, and they, got, they lost track of the main thing. It happens from time to time, more often than, than it should. That's why people like Mark Trotter were such a great example to us because they, men like that and women like that, they never lose their focus because no matter how old they are and no matter what happens in their life, they're always focused on growing and knowing God, and it moves them forward. I don't know if you guys remember that King David had this issue in his life. Remember how strong his ministry started? Remember when we first see him, the shepherd boy, going out and facing a giant? It's like freaking nuts. I just read this story. Uh, uh, Eloise, uh, she's four. She calls it the giant story. And so she's got this little picture Bible. She always wants to read the giant story all of a sudden. I think it's because the giant scares her. And she's got some sort of weird fixation like, oh, I want to, you know, I want to read the scary story. But... So, so David faces this giant, and then his life is marked with all of these victories and challenges and wilderness experiences and, and, and all of these things. His life is so exciting. And then, and then how he takes the throne in the early years of that ministry, the beginning of 2 Samuel, it's just only good. And then we get to 2 Samuel 11. And when the kings were supposed to go, is the season when kings were supposed to go in war, instead... David sends Joab. And he stays back. And he focuses on what he's got going on. And he focuses on the fact that he's got it pretty good and everybody else can kind of handle the work. And then from 11 to the end of 2 Samuel is only just hardship. Is only just That decision... To not engage, to not be challenged, oh, I'm too old for that, or whatever, whatever the excuse is, whatever excuse we have, to not be challenged, to move forward in our faith. That was enough for him to stay back, and it was only problematic for, for him from that point on. And the rest of the book, we just watched David, like, compromising and waffling back and forth, and the surety and the confidence that he used to have, it was gone, it just kind of withered away. It's heartbreaking. It's disastrous even. And this same kind of danger can exist in the contemporary church too. When we are so comfortable with the, things, the way that things are that we fail to engage at the level of God's expectation. And so that leads us to our first key point. I know it took a while to get here. Key point number one, the church is always in danger of forgetting the true mission. Always. Always. Every day, every month, every year that we engage in ministry, we are always in danger of forgetting the main thing. And the byproduct of our comfort is always going to be failure. A failure to pursue, a failure to go, a failure to take risks, challenge ourselves. The moment we take our eyes off the joy and the hardship of the Great Commission is the moment that we start to die. Even MBT and Kaya are in jeopardy of being complacent and dying a slow death. We have to constantly remind ourselves what we exist, exist for, what our purpose as Christians is. And that this fellowship, that, that Kaya, this fellowship is not a means to, in and of itself. This is, not, this is not for us. Like the excitement that exists in this ministry and all of the, this is not for us. You understand? This fellowship exists to equip and to send and to glorify the Lord. We aren't here for our pleasure or to provide an emotionally safe place for community. We exist for the pleasure of the king and to provide him with true disciples. 
And if we fail to get that perspective, we will stall out and we will fail. So as we minister, we've got to choose to take a pioneering attitude. We have to choose to love difficulty. I know, it's tough. But that's what being a true disciple is. is recognizing that how hard it gets doesn't matter. We do hard things. We do hard things. I got that a long time ago um, from a friend of mine who used to say that to his kids. We do hard things, our family. And so now with my kids, I say, when my kids are are struggling with doing something or afraid of something, I say, no, listen, Briscoes, we do hard things. That just because it's hard doesn't mean we get to relent. And so, so, you know, whether or not it's our ministry getting bounced around from one building to another building, oh, we're so tired of this, you know, moving from one place to another and how hard that can be and, and how challenging it can be and, and how nothing ever seems to, like, we can't ever get a rhythm, like the AV can't ever, ever get a rhythm or things are happening, like, so what? If that's, if that's the kind of stuff that's going to keep us on our toes, praise God for that. Or dividing Bible studies. You know, it's like whenever we talk about dividing a Bible study, it's so heartbreaking, isn't it? Like sisters and brothers that have been serving together, and then we separate them to go multiply the work of the ministry. It's always a bittersweet thing, and it's always hard. And it's okay that it's hard. It's okay that it's difficult. It's okay that it's not the same. It's okay. We have to get over ourselves. What about taking risks in leadership? Making decisions to go further. Hospitality leaders, AV leaders, worship leaders saying, what we're doing right now is good and all, but there's more that God wants from us. Bible study leaders who are anxious to take risks. Bible studies that are wanting to go and try new things and evangelize in different methods and opportunities and choosing to go out and to challenge ourselves. We've got to keep doing that. What about committing to training? Oh, well... You know, LFBI is hard. You know, I didn't go to college or whatever. LFBI is difficult. I'm not, you know, reading all those books. I'm not good at reading. Oh, I'm not, so, I'm not really that smart. These are excuses of the complacent. These are excuses of people who've chosen not to move forward in faith, who've chosen not to be fruitful. And probably the most difficult thing that we've faced as a ministry as a whole is the planting of the Church in Lee Summit and now the, the planting of the church in Vietnam. And there is nothing about that that's comfortable. And there are tho- so many things about that that we don't like and we don't want. But we, we do it because the, the alternative is death. The alternative is telling the Lord Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, telling him to his face that he's not important enough to take risks for That's the alternative. We've got to be focused on the mission. We've got to make ministry not about us. We've got to make it about the things that God wants it to be about. And that is equipping, discipling, growing, going, and taking risks. If the church in Jerusalem had more concern with the souls of the Gentiles than whether or not they were keeping their traditions, then perhaps, perhaps they would have had a much greater impact on the world. But they didn't. They were focused on the wrong thing. The next thing is the relevant church. The relevant church. So we talked about the lifeless church. Now let's talk about the relevant church. Verse 22, it says, What is it therefore? This is, this is James talking. What is it therefore? The multitude must needs come together, for they will hear that thou art come. So what he's saying, check this out. What he's saying is, we've got to figure out a way. We've got to create a scheme or a plan to get the Jewish believers to be unified with you. And it's probably going to take us, we're probably going to have to compromise to get there. We're, we're, we're probably going to have to compromise some things in, in order to appease the masses. So James, is, he's kind of freaking out, and he tells Paul, look, the Jewish Christians are saying mean things about you. <laughs> like, Paul's not used to that. And they're accusing you of teaching, the, of teaching the Jews and the Gentiles to throw away the teaching of Moses and, and refuse the Jewish customs. And as soon as they see you, as soon as they see you show up in Jerusalem, they're going to be heated. They're going to be mad. 
And we've got to do something to convince them that you don't actually, you don't actually hate the traditions of the Jews. We've got to convince them of that, so we've got to come up with a plan. So that leads us to our very first aspect of this idea of being a relevant church, is one, Christians should be free from the bondage of social and cultural pressures. The city of Jerusalem had been occupied by the Romans for quite some time, and the tensions between Jews and Romans, who were Gentiles, had been high for a very long time, especially in the recent years, the years surrounding Jesus Christ's life, the years following, the tensions were extra high. And so what that led to in the Jewish culture was a hatred for all things Gentile. So their political views in the Jewish culture was like, it informed the fact that they actually hated anything that was Gentile, and it pushed them to be very nationalistic. And in order to to make themselves feel important and feel emboldened, what they did was they chose to emphasize the the Jewish traditions in order to de-emphasize anything Gentile, anything Roman, anything like that. We hate that. We don't want that. We don't want to eat the way they eat. We don't want to shop where, where they shop. We don't want to act the way they act. We don't want to do anything that looks Gentile. So we're going to focus our, our attention on following the Mosaic law and the traditions of law. And listen to me, that culture seeped into the church, into the lives of blood-bought Christians. The culture that surrounded them began to impact them. And the the thing is, the leaders knew better. According to God, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Colossians 3.9, Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge, after the image of him that created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and all. So James is warning Paul, That despite the fact that Jerusalem believers had believed on Jesus Christ, they'd given their lives to him, they recognized conceptually that there was no difference between Jew or Greek, despite all that, that these Jewish believers, you know, they just haven't figured it out yet, and so, you know, we're kind of just appeasing them and letting them do their thing, and he's trying to explain that to Paul. They weren't really free. They were in bondage to their culture. They were letting the world tell them what to think. Romans 12, 2 says, And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. See, the church should have known the risk associated with regarding the world and respecting the opinions of men. So rather than addressing the sin in the culture, they chose to pacify the people and in so doing, they undermine God's will. So think about it this way. Let me, let me back up and talk about it this way. They knew, they knew that what God wanted was therefore to be, there to be no Jew and no Greek, that everyone lived in unity together and, and, and loved one another as the body of Christ ought. They knew that. The leaders knew that. James knew that. Peter knew that. The, the apostles knew that. They knew that. And despite all that, They sat back and watched as a culture outside of the church seeped its toxic waste into the body of Christ and created divisions where there ought not be divisions. They let that happen on their watch. And so that leads us to the next thing, and that's this. When Christians fail to impact the culture, they fall prey to it. When Christians fail to impact their culture, they will fall prey to it. So in their desire to meet the standard of their culture, James and the other apostles became complicit in the sins of the culture. And too many Christians today are more concerned with social and political issues than they are about the word of God. Christians in this room. Christians are more concerned with who's winning the sporting event 
then who is winning the battle for the universe? More talk about the NBA playoffs than there is about the chess match that exists in the, in the eternal world. More thoughts on political and social justice than on spiritual and eternal justice. Christians with more thoughts on vaccination than they have about sanctification. More opinions about tax breaks than about broken chains. And it's, it's defiled is what it is. Which leads us to our next key point, and that's this. A healthy church should never trade truth for cultural acceptance. You are not the answer for the world's problems. The word of God is. So no one cares about where you fall out in terms of how you vote or which, which team you're rooting for. At the end of the day, no one needs to give a crap. Those things are, are completely unimportant in the scheme of what God's doing. Are you hearing what I'm saying? And I know I'm kind of preaching tough and I'm being hard, but listen to me. This is so important. The church is falling prey to the culture of the world. And when Christians seek to appease the culture, they're destined for double-mindedness. They will always compound the issues that they see around them. You see problems with racial issues. You see problems with injustice. You see inequities all around you. You aren't the answer, and your opinions don't really matter. And if you put those opinions above what Christ is doing in this world and the mission to seek and to save the lost, if that becomes more important, then you are a double-minded believer, unstable in all your ways. And the only thing that you're doing is negatively impacting the group of believers who want to focus on the gospel. We weren't built for that nonsense. That's not what Christ built us for. Listen, have you ever, I read this week with my son, I read Hebrews chapter 11. Now, if you want to stay the same and you want to be comfortable, don't read Hebrews chapter 11. Because you know the way that Hebrews chapter 11 ends? It says that the faithful, they wander in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. The church isn't called to be woke or relevant. We're called to be faithful and rejected. First John 2.15 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life and, and political opinions and, and the answers of men and, and, and what we're convinced is and isn't right or wrong, it's not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. And yet, our world is full of Christians who make it their primary, a primary objective to appeal to the social and political cultural whims of the world. And the kind of thinking, that kind of thinking always has consequences. It always has consequences. So let me speak it plainly. There are churches in this city... who are no less than us. Who over the last couple of years, instead of, uh, instead of going out and engaging people with the gospel, organize their resources, their ministry resources, to focus their attention on social justice issues. These are believers just like us. No lesser than. They love Jesus Christ. They're blood-bought. We love them. They're, they're our brothers. They're our sisters. In fact, we would do whatever we could to befriend them and to die for them. But here's the deal. They engaged with those issues, and guess what? You can't win those issues. You can't win. It's, it's an... It's an it's a battle that you'll never win. That's a, that's a front and that's a territory of the battle that you can never win. You don't have the answers for that stuff. And so despite all of their efforts, it's like they're spinning their wheels. 
and throughout COVID and throughout BLM and all of the things that are in our face all the time, instead of growing and thriving and discipling, they've lost people because it creates contention in the church because all they know how to do is to argue about the best way to get that thing done. And this person has an opinion and that person has an opinion and that person has an opinion and no one can agree. All are well-intentioned, but they can never get on the same page. You know why? Because those things aren't the things that unify us. We have one mission. We have one mission, and that's to take the gospel to the world. Anything else than that will divide us. We can't afford to let this brand of Christianity find its way into our midst. Because it'll make us respecters of men instead of God. It'll cause us to undermine the gospel. It'll make us slaves to social tribes rather than slaves to the word of God and victors in Jesus Christ. See, the leaders in the church in Jerusalem should have discipled their people to not divide on these issues. But instead, they let the culture have its way. And we can't let those compromises find their way into our ministry. Amen? Amen. The third thing, the third thing is the misguided saint. The misguided saint. So we have a lifeless church. We have a relevant church, and that's really, at the end of the day, that's the fault of the leaders allowing that to happen because they failed to disciple. And now we have the individual, Paul. So they they devised this plan. The plan was for Paul to go to the temple with a group of, of, of young men that were concluding their Nazarite vow. Okay? It's to go with them to the temple. And I don't know if you guys remember, but at Mission Focus, Chris Best did this kind of big, long study of what a Nazarite vow is, right? It's this, it's this thing that we find in, in, the, in the Jewish tradition where men would separate themselves and consecrate themselves for a season. And what they do is they, they wouldn't cut their hair and they wouldn't partake of the, any fruit of the vine, whether it be a glass of wine or, you know, a, a simple grape, anything of the vine. They, they excluded themselves from and they avoided death at all costs. So, so, like, they couldn't go to a funeral, they couldn't, t- they couldn't touch or engage with a dead body or whatever. And I mean, I don't know about you, I haven't engaged a dead body in a long time. Maybe that was more common in, back then, but man, that seems like a really easy thing to avoid. Like, whoops, I accidentally touched a dead body. I mean, I don't, that seems like the easiest one to do, It's like, not touch dead bodies. Um, but they would do this as a way of separating themselves. It was a vow before the Lord, Right? And they would do this, and generally they would do it for about 30 days. At this time in Jewish culture, that was common, to do a vow for about 30 days. And they would, they would focus their attention on being close to the Lord and serving the Lord. It was very much a Jewish tradition. It was very much an Old Testament thing. And it was a big deal. And what they, they, they said to themselves is, look, Paul, so a good way to appease the people might be If you go with this group of men who are going to conclude their vow and you sponsored them, in other words, you paid their way, okay? There was a fee that was associated with this in the temple. If you paid that fee, you showed yourself present, okay, during this this ritual cleansing. They would would cleanse themselves. They would cut their hair. And you were present. If you're present for that, then, then everyone around, all of the Jewish believers, they would look at you and they would say, oh, okay, Paul's good. Paul's good. He still likes Jews. He's still very much Jewish. James and the other leaders believed that if Paul sponsored this activity and behaved himself like a Jew, that somehow he would shed himself of the unfavorable and yucky Gentile culture that had been associated with him. And here's the deal. Paul was torn. He was torn. On one hand, he knew the truth. Galatians chapter 2.16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Verse 19. For I through the law am dead to the law that I might live unto God. So he knew that truth. He couldn't escape that reality. He knew that that was true. That the law, that the Nazarite vow, that all of these things, that they were unnecessary. 
that they had no significance or bearing on justification, that they had nothing to do with setting souls free, that had nothing to do with discipleship. He knew it. He knew it. He knew that that's the perspective that the believers in Jerusalem had to have. He knew it. And yet there was another truth that warred within him. 1 Corinthians 9.19 For though I be free, uh, uh, free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all men, that I might gain the more. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without law, as without law, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. And and this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partaker thereof with you. And so he came to Jerusalem knowing that, that he would likely have to make cultural concessions in order to create an environment that he could have an impact on the people. And we ought to do that too. There are certain things in our lives, cultural things that are flexible. There's things that we can give up. There's things that we can put on. We can put this hat on. We can take that hat off. I don't have to dress this way. I don't have to act this way. If it means that I might win some people to Christ. And so he's torn between two worlds because on one hand, he wants to push these Jewish believers to believe the way that God does, that they're set free by grace, that they don't need the works of the law, that they can live set free and focused on the mission. And on the other hand, he wants to enter in among among them weak and able to be flexible, that he might meet them where they're at and win them. It's a difficult thing. And so he agrees to the plan. Verse 26, then Paul took the men and the next day purifying himself with them, entered into the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification until that an offering should be offered for every one of them. So listen though, listen. Now we have Paul in the wrong city, in the wrong place, among the wrong people, and essentially confessing to a sin that he never committed. Which leads us to our next key point, and that's this. Our love for people must never supersede our obedience to Christ. Whether or not Paul should have gone to the temple is of little or no consequence. He should have never been in Jerusalem in the first place. He found himself in a position of compromise, and he chose to compromise. It's a tough place to be in. How often do you put yourself in compromising situations where you can't win? It's a no-win situation. This was completely avoidable. And we do the same thing. We put ourselves in compromising situations with people that we love, people that we we care about, old friends from high school. Yeah, I'm going to meet them for dinner. Yeah, we might have a couple drinks. And then you end up acting the way that you used to act before you knew Jesus Christ? God forbid. We find ourselves in these situations all the time where it's like, yeah, I just want to minister to my family members. But then you get around them and you start compromising in all those ways. It's so easy when you put yourself in compromising situations to compromise. And the result is always going to be failure. And that's what we have here, isn't it? We have a compromised church. We have a compromised believer. How could, the, how could this turn out good? Paul loved the Jewish people, but in this instance, these people were a distraction to his greater purposes. Because he desired the favor of the people, he was willing to set aside his convictions. You know, it's not even much different. than Remember when Paul had to confront Peter about knowing, knowing that it was okay to to eat things that didn't fall under Jewish law, Levitical law? Like Like, you can eat those things. Peter knew that. But then when the other Jew, Jewish leaders would show up, he would like be like, oh, I'm not eating this. And Paul would like confront him and he's like, man, that's not cool. You know the truth. Why not teach the truth? Why not exemplify the truth? In this case, we need to grow these Jewish believers that are around us. We need to teach them and we need to show them with our actions that the Gentiles are accepted in Jesus Christ and that this meal is nothing before God. And he confronts Peter to his face, it says. But then Paul, just like all of us, just like all of us hypocrites, 
finds himself in a very similar situation. We're just like Paul, though. Well-intentioned in our love for people, but aimless in our greater purposes. Paul was headed in the wrong direction, and his choices were not without consequence. As a believer, are you distracted or misguided in your purposes? As we conclude, I want to talk about three things. Okay, three things. First, we saw a church that was comfortable with the status quo. Unable to focus on the true mission because they hadn't been challenged in God's word. And here's my challenge for you. Do you need discipleship? Or are you cool with the status quo? Like, are you just cool with just coming here every Sunday? Or just cool with being at Bible study? Or are you going to go deeper? Are you going to sign up for discipleship? Are you going to sign up for LFBI? Are you going to choose to participate? Are you going to choose to engage? Are you going to find a ministry that you can get involved in? Are you going to commit yourself at a deeper level? Are you going to wade out into the deep end? You get to decide. But what's not okay is the status quo. Two, we saw a church leadership that appealed to the culture rather than Christ. That's faith over fear. That's the, that's the faith over fear issue. Are you going to have faith over fear? Or are you going to look around and say, well, I've got to appease this person and appease this person, and you become a respecter of persons because you fear others? Or are you going to have faith to overcome that? And we saw an individual who struggled to see the forest of God's mission through the trees of those he wanted to win. And in that case, we've got a man who's putting his agenda over God's. And there's many people in this room who have an agenda that we've put over God's agenda. And so whether you know you need to not be comfortable anymore and move forward and go deeper, or maybe you know that you've been fearing something and it's gotten in the way and you want to choose faith, or you recognize that you've put your stuff over God's stuff, all of these things are worth repenting over today and getting right. So I'm going to invite the worship team up. And as I do that, I'm going to read to you Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always even unto the end of the world. Amen. Have you complicated God's mission for your life? Have you become aimless, distracted, or comfortable in your faith? If you have, today is the day to repent before the Lord and make it right. We've got a mission to do. And, and listen to me. I, like, I felt like I've done a lot of really focused teaching today, a lot of preachy preaching toughness. But I just want to engage you as a person, okay? As just another minister in this class. As, as your friend. Like, we might not even be super close. It's hard to be close with everybody, isn't it? But as your friend and as a co-laborer with you, you and I, we can't afford to be distracted. We can't afford to be aimless. We can't afford to focus on the wrong things. We can't afford to be comfortable. And so let's, let's us commit together. Let's commit together that we're going to make this incredibly uncomfortable. That Kaya is going to be inc incredibly uncomfortable. Everything about it is going to be difficult. Because that's how, you, that's how you do exploits. You choose the hard thing. And let's commit together that instead of being aimless, we're going to be, be laser-focused. And that focus will be the lens of Scripture. And we're going to focus on what God's Word is asking us to do. Can we commit to doing that together, to not be distracted by the world anymore? That's what I desire for me. And that's as your friend and as your family in the Lord, I desire that for you too. Yeah? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, um, We don't have the strength to do that. Only by your spirit can we actually commit to following you without distraction. 
And so all of the things that we learn today, all of the things that are, are tendencies of every church, every, every church, including this one, Lord, we recognize that we don't have in and of ourselves the ability to, to, to guard ourselves against chasing after relevance and, 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 and compromising your gospel and, and you know, a, just appealing to the world. That's our tendency. That's what our flesh does. And so we need your help. We need your spirit. We need your fervency. We need you to keep us focused. Because we'll go astray. We're just, we're just sheep. So Lord, please guide us. Please lead us. You're a good shepherd. and We love you and we trust you. We pray for your help, Lord. If we need to repent today, help us to do that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.